Well, let's join in prayer. Father, as we come again to your word, we pray that you would speak and speak to our hearts. May the sharp-edged sword of your word, as we feel its touch upon us today, may it do its work in us, changing us, convicting us, Increasing our faith, our hope, our love, our certainty. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the book of Revelation, you'll remember, opens with that remarkable vision given to John of the exalted Lord Jesus Christ walking in the midst of the lampstands symbolic of his presence in the midst of his church. And Jesus commissioned the Apostle John to write letters to churches of the things that he saw and heard, a series of seven messages to seven churches in the region of Asia Minor, what we would call modern-day Eastern Turkey. These seven messages were written to real congregations in each city. They are not merely symbolic of seven anythings, not seven different eras of the New Testament age. No, they are what they appear to be, seven messages for seven churches. Arranged in a way, if you looked at them geographically, that roughly describes an ark that would be the likely route for the person carrying the letters as they delivered them. They would go here, 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 and so on. Seven messages to seven churches in seven locations. And this morning we begin with the first of those messages to the church at Ephesus. Mindful that the New Testament tells us quite a bit about the church at Ephesus. How it was born through Paul's preaching. We read about that in Acts chapter 19 this morning. Then how it functioned. We have hints of that in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which is the church in Ephesus, which reveals, if you read between the lines of Ephesians, a healthy and a growing church. But later in the New Testament, we find something not so good about the church at Ephesus. False teaching had crept in and Paul found it necessary to send Timothy to bring renewal and reformation to the church at Ephesus. We read about that in 1 and 2 Timothy. And now here in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, a few years after Paul's death and about 30 to 35 years after they first believed the gospel at Ephesus. Maybe some of the generation who heard Paul preach were still alive. Maybe some had been martyred 
And now the next generation of believers were growing up in the church at Ephesus. And John writes to them, and we find that while there was still a good deal to commend the church there, the situation is just kind of on a knife edge. And it's not John that's sounding the alarm, it's Jesus. This morning, let's think about Jesus' assessment of the church at Ephesus and consider it under these three headings. First of all, let's note the labour that Jesus noticed. The labour that Jesus noticed. There are actually three things here for which the Ephesians are commended in the first few verses. For a start, they're a hard-working church. Verse 2, I know your works, I know your toil, Jesus says. The word toil is really the word trouble. I know your troubles. We sometimes talk like that, don't we? We talk about someone going to a great deal of trouble to do something for us. It was a painstaking task. We sometimes say, that's how the Ephesian church went about serving Jesus. They took the trouble to do it. It cost them. They were painstaking in their diligent effort to do gospel work well. This was a busy church. This was a serving church. This was a church with a ministry. John Stott says of them, the church at Ephesus was a veritable beehive of industry. Their toil was famous. Every member was busy doing something for Christ. A hard-working church. Then also they were a persevering church. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. Verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and you have not grown weary, Jesus says. We read this morning in Acts 19 of how the church was born in a context of opposition and persecution. The church's core group was formed when Paul was ejected from the synagogue in Ephesus for preaching Christ. And as the church grew, as we said a few moments ago, its message was such a challenge to the worship of Artemis and to the local economy built upon the cult of Artemis that it resulted in a riot. Furthermore, Ephesus was a regional centre for the cult of the emperor, for emperor worship. And Christian refusal to participate in the cult of worshipping the emperor would spark repeated waves of persecution. So clearly, Ephesus was not an easy place to be a Christian. And yet Jesus said of them, you haven't grown weary. You have been enduring patiently. You haven't grown weary. That's quite a commendation, isn't it? Growing weary and well-doing is so terribly easy, isn't it? But the Ephesians had stuck at it with determination and courage and fortitude and patient endurance. All good things. Then also they were an orthodox church. They love sound doctrine. We see that in verse 2. You cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. 
Look down at verse 6. This you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, says Jesus. And before you ask, no, we don't know much about the Nicolaitans. They reappear later in the letter to the church at Pergamum as well. Though whoever they were, it's clear that they were teaching false doctrine with claims, false claims, to be apostles. Now Paul himself, when he was among the church at Ephesus, had warned them that false teachers would come. We read that in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. He told the elders of the churches... After my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore be alert. And they had been alert. They were well prepared. And so when false teachers arose and Paul had said that they would, they carefully examined these teachers and dealt with them. They were not swayed by every wind of doctrine blown and tossed about, as Paul says in chapter 4 of the letter to them. They were a sound church, they were a biblical church, they were an orthodox church. That's not a bad report card, is it? Not a bad report card at all. Hard working, patient in endurance, not growing weary, committed to orthodox teaching. And what an encouragement it must have been to the Ephesian Christians to hear that Jesus saw all this and knew all this. Did you see his words? I know. He said to them, I know. Maybe some of them were quietly serving and rarely given any kind of recognition for it. Jesus says, I know. Some of them were devoted to praying and working away in the background with nobody else watching them. Jesus says, I know. There's no acknowledgement. They wouldn't have it any other way. But Jesus acknowledges them. Isn't it good to hear the one who walks among the lampstands say to his church and say to us, I know what you do. I see what you do. I see those visits you make. I see your giving that is in secret. I see that meal you took to the widow. That quiet word of encouragement to a struggling member, brother or sister, your faithful prayers over years and years, your faithfulness to me in a context that costs you something, I see and I know, even though nobody else sees or knows. Jesus says, I know. There's not a drop of sweat spent or a tear shed in his service that he does not see and prize and celebrate. He says to us, I know. But then secondly, there's the decline that Jesus exposed. See, the thing with Jesus when he says, I know, he knows everything. He knows the good and he knows the bad. And he finds... 
He puts his finger on that which is missing. He also says about that, I know, I know what's missing amongst you. Verse 4, this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. To all appearances, by any measure you might care to use, this church in Ephesus was an outstanding congregation. Remember the list of commendations? Good works, persevering, not growing weary, lovers of sound doctrine. If you were looking for a church, it would be hard not to be drawn to the church at Ephesus. There's ministry going on. There's a proven track record. The pulpit rings with truth. And yet we learn here, don't we, that it's possible to shine with those exemplary traits and still be in a church in the throes of backsliding. Nevertheless, the flickering flame of zeal for Jesus and his glory is fading. It's growing dim. They had abandoned, they had lost the love for him they had at first. Not love for one another, not love for the truth, but their love for him. They were serving, they were witnessing, they were preaching, but it's possible to be doing all this. And here we sit up and take note of this very real warning. It's possible to have all that in place, to love the brothers, to love the lost, to love the scriptures, but still allow your love for Jesus to diminish, to grow cold. It's possible to live as though the Christian life is little more than a matter of community service with moral decency and an accurate memory of the shorter catechism. Isn't that true? Community service, moral decency and the catechism thrown in. But what an arid, lifeless thing that would be. The life of true Christianity is love. It's bright and burning love for Christ. Not that the Ephesians didn't love him at all. They did, but had begun to be like a marriage that had grown stale. They had begun to focus on doing things for him rather than being with him, rather than loving him and being so busy we're neglecting the great bridegroom who loves his bride, the church, and given himself for the church. Like Martha, distracted by much serving, they seem to have forgotten the one thing needful that Jesus spoke to Martha about. Could it be that the same Jesus who acknowledges your many labours for his glory could also say to, your, to us, this I have against you? Have you lost your first love? Has the flame of your zeal, your ardour to know Christ, to know him and to make him known, has it grown dim? 
I wonder if you say with William Cowper in the two stanzas of his hymn, Oh, for a closer walk with God, where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word? What peaceful hours I once enjoyed. How sweet their memories still, but they have left an aching void. The world can never fill. Does that resonate with your experience? And how would you know if you've lost your first love? Well, like in a marriage, it's the little things, isn't it? Less time given to one another. Less time spent in prayer. Less time spent in the word. Skipping church because of a better offer. More time spent being busy, but less time spent being holy. That's a danger, isn't it? More time in the world compared to the word. Neglecting, neglecting Christ for other things. These are little things, but don't they count for so much? And like the disciples around the table with the Lord Jesus, is it I, Lord? Is it me? Have I lost my first love? I preach this to myself as well. And I ask you to put your hand up and say, is it me? Have I lost my first love? Well, what can be done? Is there any way to rekindle the flame of our love for Jesus? Well, we see, thirdly, the response that Jesus commanded. Here we think about verse 5. Jesus tells the Ephesian believers to do three things. Right there on the surface of verse 5, there's a threefold path to spiritual renewal for the church and for yourself. Three things, all starting with R. The first is remember, the second is repent, and the third is return. That's what we need to do if our flame is not to burn out completely and Christ is not to remove the lampstand altogether and our witness as a church be finished. These three things are urgent. Here's the antidote. Remember, repent, return. Step one, remember. Remember how it was when you were first alive with the joy of knowing Jesus, with the joy of being among his people, with the joy of longing for Sunday, when you could be there under the preaching of his word and, and have the fellowship of the saints and worship him and honour him with your lips. Do you remember those moments when Christ was real to you? When the word of God seemed to speak to you as he touched your heart with his finger, when he was sweet and satisfying and other pleasures could not compete. Do you remember the love you had for Christ at first? Remember it. The path to awakening your appetite for spiritual renewal begins with bringing back to mind the heights that you once knew. 
Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul and all that is within me. Bless his holy name and forget not all his benefits. Remember, remember how Christ was precious to you when you first came to know him. That's step one. Step two is repent. The word means change direction. It's not an emotion word, although emotion always accompanies true repentance. There ought to be sorrow for sin, but Jesus isn't calling us to a feeling. He's calling us to action. Repent, change, turn around. Stop what you're doing and turn around. How sane and matter-of-fact is the word of Jesus, says John Stott. So many of us admit to our present state, but we wait for some emotional upheaval to set us right. We're like children who fall in a puddle and sit in the mud waiting for someone to pick them up when they should just get up and turn around as soon as we are conscious of falling. So should we get up. And so here's the word of Jesus to all of us. Take concrete and specific steps to change direction. Don't go in the direction you're going. Pursue Christ instead. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells the story of a man in London. This man had professed faith in the Lord Jesus but had drifted far from God and was alone and miserable in the streets of London, about to end his life, contemplating suicide, reaching the Westminster Bridge to end it all, to jump off the bridge. Suddenly he heard Big Ben strike 6.30. And the thought entered his mind, Dr Lloyd-Jones will be entering the pulpit now at the evening service. And on a whim he got off the bridge and set off to hear him one last time and heard him begin his pastoral prayer with these words. God, have mercy on the backslider. And it struck him. And God had mercy on him. And the man's faith was renewed. And he lived and died for Jesus. Repent, says Jesus. There's an immediacy, there's an urgency with this call of the king. Remember and repent. Turn back. Stop playing with your pet sin. Turn back. God, have mercy on the backslider. Send a revival. Start the work in me. And then it's not a complicated command, is it? The third step, return. Do the works you did at first. It's not a complicated command, is it? Do the works you did at first. Go back. Use all the means that God has given you to stay close to Jesus, to hear his word, to love him again. Give up your neglect of the scriptures. Be more under the preaching of the word. Pray with others and have them pray for you. Make prayer, secret prayer, a priority. Sit at the Saviour's feet and hear his word to you. 
I say these things not to make you feel shame or guilt, but to inspire you and also to inspire myself toward change and renewal and life. Remember, repent, return. If you went to Sunday school as a child, you probably would have been taught to sing as I was, uh, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. We sang that with great enthusiasm, as probably you did. We're supposed to shine brightly for Jesus. And the image of the church is a lampstand with which the first chapter of the book ends, the chapter of Revelation ends, and the second chapter begins, now gets the same idea, doesn't it? Jesus holds the seven stars in his right hand, walks among the seven golden lampstands, and each is to burn brightly for its saviour. But the truth is, whether we sang it sincerely or not as children, it's not always easy to let our little light shine. There have been doubts and fears along the way, threats and oppositions, stresses, suffering, COVID and just general pain to douse the flames of our fervour for Christ. And yet, even as we admit that, I think you'll also agree that self-evaluation is actually a hard thing to do. See, our egos tend to get in the way, don't they? That's part of what makes the seven letters in Revelations chapters 2 and 3 so tremendously helpful. They give us Jesus' perfect and objective assessment of how brightly our lights are shining, if they are shining at all. That's why the one who walks among the lampstands in verse 2 and again in verse 3 says, I know, I know. Whatever boasts we make of ourselves, Jesus knows the truth. And the task before us then is to ask ourselves with judgment day honesty as we sit under the word together, what's my spiritual fervour like? Has it begun to happen to me? Am I coasting as a Christian? Am I coasting? I might be committed, I might be orthodox, I might be diligent, but if my first love has grown cold, then what use will I be or will you be in the kingdom of God? And if that's your condition, then you also need to respond with urgency to the commands Jesus gives, those three R's, because if you don't, If you don't and if we don't, then Jesus says he will come against us and remove our lampstand. He would rather have no church in the area, in that area, than have a church that persistently fails to love him. That's how serious it is. See, the biggest threat to the church is not the world, the flesh and the devil. It's not persecution, the government or social progression. The biggest threat to the church is Jesus. 
He says he will take the lampstand and remove it if we don't love him. He is the bridegroom and he calls his church to love him and he will tolerate no rivals and he will stand for no idols in the way. Let him who has ears to hear hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Lord our God, we confess we fall. We fall because we don't love you as we ought. And this is the problem. This is the problem that all churches have. And it's one that we have. And it's the root problem of so many problems in our church. We don't love you as we ought. We don't love you with heart and soul and mind and strength. Not all heart and all our mind and all our soul and all our strength. We plead with you for revival, for spiritual revival, so that our love will not grow cold and our lampstand will not be taken away from us and our witness not be dim. Help us, Lord. We would be foolish to hear this and not think about it, not take it home with us. Help us to put things right now to confess our lack of love and pray for grace that we might love you more. More love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.